Well, welcome to the last week in the series, Revelation Volume 4, The Return of Christ. I say the last week, that is until next year. Uh, we start, uh, we're going to end today, uh, and then we're going to pick it up again in January, the first two weeks in January, we're going to hit that last chapter. I just couldn't fit it in because the holidays are upon us. Who's ready for Thanksgiving? Anybody ready for Thanksgiving? I've been training all year for this week, uh, training at the 10 meter buffet, and uh, I'm ready for this. Uh, if you're just joining us this, this week, this is the end of a series that has gone on four years. Each fall, we've taken a few weeks and gone through Revelation chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You can go all the way back to year one if you'd want to. If you're just joining us today, I would encourage you to at least go back, pick it up last week. This is kind of the second part uh, of what we're talking about in this. But you can go all the way back to volume one, Revelation. Well, last week, the Apostle John, who is getting this revelation straight from Jesus, explains four big things that are happening. Review with me first. The old heaven and this earth that we're on has been replaced. It's gone away. They have been destroyed. They no longer exist. Second, in their place, a new heaven, a new earth have been created Third, in that place, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. Say a big hearty amen. amen. Now, see, I had to get the first service to do that again because they did like, amen. Like it was a funeral. This isn't a funeral. This is a celebration. This is big. No more tears, no more sorrow. Death is gone away because we will be with God. Number four, we looked at what John described as a city, a massive city you'll see coming down. The name of the city is called the City of God or New Jerusalem, but it's called, it's likened to a bride, like a bride and groom. The bride is the church. This is God's people in this city coming down. And so he likens it to this bride, but it is a city. So that's what we're going to dive into, what the city looks like on the outside. What is heaven? This is heaven. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? How, how will we do life? We'll do that this week. We're going to look at the outside of the city. But first, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Just the chance to, to open your words here. Uh, God, you are wonderful, you are awe-inspiring, you are good, like our worship team was leading us to sing. God, I can't wait to sing those songs in heaven. Father, would you, would you make your name great in our midst, through us and through the words that we read from the Holy Bible? God, as we study those words the words of our future, what it looks like, will you show us just who you are? and who we are in you, Christ Jesus. God, would you take all the distractions away? Let all the stuff just pushing against our little brains uh, just be kept at bay just for a few minutes. And would your Holy Spirit just help us make sense of these verses, help them to come alive, not just make sense, God, help, them, help us to see this place, help our minds and our spirits to be drawn to our home. And God, would you show us how to live our life now in store 
for that treasure on that, on that side, in that place. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, right at first, uh, let's point out something that's very important to understand. If you don't get this, if this won't make sense. We, we're going to pick it up in chapter uh, 29 or 21, verse 9. And it's a new transition in the reading. You can always tell the new transition because he'll say, then I heard or then I saw and he'll describe it. Make sense? And this means that he is seeing these things in sequential order. He's saying this thing, then this thing, then this thing. That's important because Revelation's not always sequential. But these chapters are, these events are. But here's the thing I don't want you to lose. Everything John describes in Revelation 21 has both a physical reality, meaning it's real, and a deep spiritual meaning. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verse by verse. We're going to see what is the reality, what is the realness of this thing, but then what does it point to that has a spiritual meaning? Now that's important because I want you to see this, not us living on a bunch of clouds, right? That's what Hollywood says. Like we're living in clouds and there's no land. We're just kind of sitting there. It's all kind of fuzzy and we're all half asleep, kind of strumming harps and there's naked babies flying around. And, and that's not heaven. This is heaven. This is what scripture says. Let's look at verse nine. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, John recognizes one of the seven angels that pours out the wrath, the final wrath of God. You'll remember that in chapter 16, 17. During that seven years of tribulation, he, he says that's one of those angels. Notice he's taking John to show him the bride, the wife of the Lamb. They're buried now. The wife of the Lamb is the church. Who is the Lamb? That's Jesus. He is pictured as a lamb, lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's just this picture. The angel is taking John to show him this new Jerusalem. But it is described as a bride because it is where God's people are. That's you. That's the church. So look at verse 10. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. A couple of things. We know it's the holy city, Jerusalem, not the current Jerusalem, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and is coming down. It hasn't landed yet. And it is coming out of heaven from God. Now this mountain that he's taken up to must be massive in size, by the way, because the size of this city, it's just going to blow your mind. I'll explain it in just a moment. But the city has not come all the way down, but it is coming down and will land. It will eventually rest on this new earth. 
Here's how John describes the city. Watch as John describes to describe, tries to describe what he sees, but words won't do it justice. And you can kind of hear his frustration just a little bit. He's trying to describe something that he has never seen before. So look at verse 11. Arrayed with God's glory. He's talking about the city. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now here's what you need to know. Jasper stone is not clear as crystal. It's an orange kind of reddish color depending on what kind of jasper you get. But he's saying it's that color. But look at this word like, L-I-K-E. He's not saying it is jasper stone or at least yet. He's saying it's like it. He's saying, you know, the color like this. But he's saying it's as clear as a crystal without impurities. A God's glory is always associated with light. You'll want to write that down. God's glory is always associated with light. And specifically, when that light lights something up, when the light hits it. Think about being in a dark room and suddenly the light turns on. It goes to all the parts of the room. Well, that's kind of a good example but a better one would be in the dark before the sunrise and the sun creeps above, you see it come up and it gets a little bit more light and then suddenly when the light beams have direct access, especially to our high mountains. Don't you love when the mountains, have you ever noticed the mountains here, they light up at the top first and then go down, right? They come down and they light up and it makes them glorious. What made them glorious? The light. They were shown, but the mountains were beautiful. It's in this case as well. It catches the light. The city in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, you would say glory and light and smoke, specifically clouds, all went together. Why? Well, because you can't see light. You just see that it's coming through when it lights something up. You can see it, though, when it hits the smoke or clouds, right, or something like the mountains. Are you with me? That's what you need to picture here. The pillar of smoke and fire above the tabernacle, the light that was in it, that was the glory of God. And when Jesus transfigured on the mount and his clothes became as white as could be and there were clouds all around Jesus when he was taken back up into heaven after his resurrection, that's what's happening here. The city is taking this light in, this glory, and check this out, it's amplifying that light. It's taking the light and it's making it even brighter, but it's bending it and showing the glory and the color the city is glowing like when a light hits a diamond, a ray of light hits a diamond. Have you ever seen that? And light just go poof. It goes off in all different ways. Notice that word like though. This is important in this passage because John really doesn't know all the substances. He's trying to just give you a sense. What does it look like? What does it feel like? He is saying it's like a precious jewel, like Jasper. But he's just saying, here's the color. That's what he's saying. So look at verse 12. John says, the city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. A couple of things before we go on. It's saying, look, 
Israel's sons. And you go, like the country, yes. But in this case, what it's talking about is a man named Israel. His name had originally been Jacob. And God said, your name's no longer Jacob. It is Israel. He had 12 sons. His 12 sons, or the tribes of Israel, are written one on each gate. You following? So massive high walls, an angel at each gate. Notice that the names of those 12 tribes are on the gate. Now write this down. New Jerusalem is tied to God's work through his chosen people, the Hebrews. You could write the Jews or the Israelites, right? After that guy's name. This city is inextricably linked to the Hebrew people. This is important. God's chosen people. But not just that, because the 12 tribes are written on the gate, may also signify that the gates are the way into the city, right? If you're going in, you have to go in through the gates. In other words, our getting into heaven is through the Jewish people. In other words, God provided the law and the Savior through the Hebrew people. Isn't that cool? So we go in through those gates. Three gates on each side, north, south, east, west. The meaning may be here that the city's also in the center and that it doesn't face just one way, but all roads lead to the center of this new universe, God's capital city, the new Jerusalem, the city of God. Look at verse 14. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Remember, the city is not all the way landed. It's not sitting on the ground. He can see the bottom of it right now. He can see the foundation and the whole city. Now, you're going to say, oh, I get it, but you're going to not understand once I show you the size in just a minute. The names of the apostles are written on each of the 12 layers of the foundation. Look at this. The city wall had 12 foundations and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundation. So like the names written on the gates, now the names of the apostles are written on these foundations. Remember, the city is not all the way landed, so you can see each layer. So look at this. New Jerusalem is tied to God's work through His chosen people, the church. So it was tied also to his people, the Hebrews. Now it's tied to the rest of the pe his people, the church. This is so important to understand this. The church does not replace the Jewish people, the Hebrews. There's a doctrine out there that's called replacement theology, and we want to make sure Always, we don't follow that theology that says, well, the Jews were, but now the Christians are God's people. That would be incorrect. The Hebrews are God's people. We are joined in. We are grafted in. We are chosen like them. But the Jewish people still make, make up a part. We make up a part. It is through God's people, the Jews, that the law came through Jesus, his bloodline comes, but this new Jerusalem is tied to the church. Look at verse 15. The one who spoke with me 
had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its walls. So it's this angel that had poured out like the judgments, right? He's recognizing, he's taken him up to this high mountain. This is about to blow your mind, the size and proportions. But look at the measuring rod in the angel's hand. What do we know about it? Just that it's, in an, it's a heavenly measuring rod and we know it's gold. Means it's perfect in every way. It's an exact measuring rod. Like a measuring tape, but does, it's just one length, right? And it's, it's heavenly. It's right. It's true. The city is about to be measured by this angel so that you will know how big it is. John is not guessing how big. He's not saying, hey, it's bigger than a bread box. Not quite big, as big as this, or but bigger than this, smaller than this. He's going to tell you how big it is and its proportion to itself and its shape because this shape is unlike any city you have ever seen and unlike any city that we have ever seen on earth. So, let's look at 16. The city is laid out on a square. Got this picture? Got it? It's a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Here's what you need to see. New Jerusalem is a perfect cube. Now, some of you are like going, man, this is just whacked. This is way out there. I go, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's a square up and down. Now, this may sound like a small detail. It may sound insignificant, but it's not. Remember last week when we talked about God being with the Israelite people after he delivered them out of slavery? Remember that? He's in the desert with them. He takes Moses up. On the mount, he gives them the 12, the 12 commandments, the 10 commandments, the 10 commandments. And he says, this is how you're supposed to do everything. Remember that? He lays out this traveling tent that's called a tabernacle. He says, I want you to build this traveling tent, this tabernacle in a certain way. And I'm going to meet with you there. He lays out the outer courtyard. He lays the inner courtyard. And he says, put the holy things in there, like the altar where they're going to burn the animals and the altar of incense where they burn incense. and Like they've got the table where the showbread is and the lamp. And then the piece de resistance, you got the Ark of the Covenant, right? He says, I want you to build a room and then a room with inside the room. And this outside room is called the holy place. But that inside room in the far back is going to be called the Holy of Holies. And I want you to put the ark in there. And one time a year, the chief priest will go in and make a sacrifice for all the people. And he'll go in and make that sacrifice there. So God tells him to lay out this. And he says, I'm going to give you. It's got to be exact. Why does it have to be exact? He says, it's a copy of of the real thing. Where's the real thing? He says in heaven. The real temple is in heaven right now. In fact, Hebrews 8, 5 says this. These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Talking about the tabernacle and eventually the temple on earth. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful 
that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Now remember, the current heaven, there is a temple in the current heaven as we speak right now. The earthly temple was copied after the real temple. Back in Revelation chapter 4, we got to see inside the heavenly temple. Do you remember that? When God is on the throne, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and the sea of billions of people, and this, what they said, sea of glass, that's inside that heavenly temple. Here's what I want you to see. Some of you will get this right away. Some of you won't. The city is cube-shaped. And so was the Holy of Holies back in the tabernacle in the temple. Now we're going to see here that there is no temple in the city that we're looking at. There is no temple. Here's what you need to get. New Jerusalem is God's home. You can write out that where we will live. We will live with him in his home. Go in the big square thing, yes. In a very real sense in this cube, we don't need a temple in the New Jerusalem. Why? Because the entire place is the Holy of Holies. Do you get that? It's not just some box in the back of a tent in the desert anymore. We are with God in His house. The Holy of Holies. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, his death, pouring out his blood for us as a, catch this, a propitiation, as a payment for our sins. To pay for your sins, that's the reason we're able to go into this place. That's the entire city of God. God is no longer combined to a planet in the back room. Now he is the center and we will be with him. The angel measures this city with this golden rod. The city of God is so big. And you say, how big is it? Now that was pretty good. But let's do it again. The city of God is so big. How big is it? You ready? You really want to know? Here it is. It's going to blow your mind. New Jerusalem is 1,500 miles deep wide and tall some of you can't get that you're like how many miles is denver <laughs> right <laughs> i've been to some of the biggest cities in the world and recently i was in new york city which is a big city i've been in chicago quite a bit but those are nothing in size compared to say a mexico city um, there are literally more people in mexico cities living in one section of town than all of Chicago. Did you know that? Did you know that the city of Seoul is, is a massive city, a super city, a city of London like that? Those cities are maybe 25 miles across. Just to give you some idea to compare that to, if we put the new Jerusalem on the current earth, it won't be, but just to see, because you know what the United States looks like, its footprint would look like this. Yeah. Some of you are going, ah, uh, right? Now, a couple of things here. One, the new Jerusalem will not be on the earth. Well, it will be on a new earth. Now, we don't know the size of the new earth. 
And I told you I'd tell you when something is an opinion. This is just an opinion. There's no scripture on this. I'm assuming because of the size of this city that the new earth will be much larger. Like in the size of, say, Saturn. Or even bigger out there. We don't know. The Bible, that's just assumption there. Because if this earth were at this new earth, were the size it is now, and we put that city, I'm sure God can do whatever he wants to and make it work, but it would extend out beyond right now even the atmosphere. This has got to make sense. But they, uh, it's God's deal. I found a picture that a guy tried to show the size, so he put it like the, the footprint like I just showed you here, but then he did it as a cube just to show it on a globe. You want to see it? You want to see it? You know, it's like, all right, here, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I love this. I love this. It's like a giant pimple on the earth, right? Now remember, this is a real place. This is a physical place. I say that because critics of the Bible like to say, well, it's not the real size. This is just hyperbole. Well, John and God, and I'm assuming this angel, thought of that argument. That's why they said, here's the angel measuring it with a measuring rod. That's what the angel is doing here. Look at verse 17, just to drive the point home. Verse 17 says, then he measured its walls, 144 cubits according to the human measurement, which the angel used. In other words, God didn't use some heavenly measurement. He used our measurement from that time. And we know what it, it is. That 12,000 stadia is 1,500 miles. Now, here's the thing. Some people look at this 144 cubits and they go, okay, a cubit is about from here to the longest tip of your finger right there. So they would say, all right, 140 cubits tall. That's not what it's saying. The walls are 1,500 miles tall. What this is saying is 144 cubits thick. In other words, the, the walls are 144 cubits thick. But what's, what's it talking about here in that 144? You remember how I said everything is both physical and this spiritual picture? Even the number, you get to that by multiplying 12 times 12. The Jewish number and the Christian number. Again, combining the meaning of the, that the city is about God's people from the Old Testament and the Jewish people and the church from the New Testament and the church age, right? But what does the city look like? Let's get down. Here it is. The building material of its wall was jasper. Notice he doesn't say like anymore. We don't know if it's really jasper or not because he said like before. But jasper and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. So he's saying two things. Now, jasper can have the same color as gold, kind of that yellowish golden color. But notice it's pure and clear as glass. Gold and jasper are not clear. Now this gets confusing, but hang on. John had said the city was like before jasper, but now it says jasper and gold what is the city? We don't know for sure. We don't know. We know the color. Take a look at your wedding ring. If you've got a wedding ring or something of gold. Mine's gold. I haven't taken that off in years. Look at it. It's shiny. Can you see it? Shiny. 
I can't see through it. And you can't see through any gold. You can't see through any gold. Gold's not like that here. So it's different there. Here's what we think. That the gold lets light through and the glory of God is being amplified. You know what amplified? It's like turned up. The glory of God, which is light, is turned up in the city. But it also means that the gold was pure. No defects, defects, no blemishes at all. Smooth, perfect in every way. And it's reflecting the per perfectness, the completeness of God. You go, okay, I get it. I don't think you do. I don't think you do. You're just picturing a city and light at this. Remember, John can still see the foundation of the city. It's not on the new earth yet. Still up in the air. So look at verse 19. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, crystallite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, crystal praise. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. I should get an award for that. We, we could spend hours here and a ton of meaning, but here's, uh, but we're not going to go that deep on each color. We could go on the color and on the kind of stone that it is. But let me just show you the stones. These are both uh, in the raw, and some are polished and cut according to man-made. But just to show you the colors of the 12 foundation, here's jasper. You see kind of the gold orange, but it's clear in this. This is not clear. Here's sapphire. Those are cut sapphires, beautiful. I love this one. This one is chalcedony. Another one, it's a darker green emerald. That's in its raw form. Here's sardonyx. Sardonyx, kind of a salmon and red. You see the different colors. This full of variety. You see, God is creative. He he's, wants you to have beauty. He wants to have variety in this place. I love this one. This one is uh, carnelian. Here's crystal light. And then beryl. It's kind of a yellowish green. How about topaz? I put two different colors of topaz. There's actually a range of color in between those two. This is crystal praise here in its raw form, unpolished. Jacinth. I think this is, yeah, that's it. Kind of this red, kind of ruby looking. And then amethyst. That was the hardest to say, amethyst. amethyst. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. We could spend our entire ta time talking about these. And I'm not making it up. These stones, their significance. It's worth studying on your own sometimes or in a study. But here's what I want you to know. First, these colors of these gems, they're beautiful, right? I love each one. That again, like everything in the city, they amplify light. They let the light through. This is creativeness at its purest form. Our God is creative. That's why you're creative. Some of you are artists. Second, the stones tie back to the Old Testament. The chief priest on the Old Testament would go into the Holy of Holies each year and make that sacrifice they would put this linen outfit on. They would have two guys scrub the one guy going in each year, scrubbing from head to toe, even down to his little fingernails and toenails, every speck of dust. And then 
They would have two more guys do the same thing all over again. This guy, not a hair out of place. And they'd put this ceremonial robe on him, perfectly white, and all these jewels, this really cool hat. They would put the bells on the bottom of the robe. That's what we know. And the bells were so that when he would go in and offer the sacrifice one time a year, they could tell if he was moving, right? Now, this isn't in Scripture. Some have thought it was, but it is Jewish tradition that the high priest would have a rope tied around his leg. Do you know why? Because if he died, they could get him out. They could drag his body out. If the bells quit ringing, they start pulling. You see what I mean? How does that relate to these 12 stones? Well, on the front was called an ephod, and this is what it looked like. The 12 stones were on the front of the high priest as he went in before God. And if you look close, each stone has written on it in Hebrew the name of the Israelite tribe, the sons of Israel. Let's look like the 12 gates, what they look like in verse 21. Here it is. The 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. Now you've got to understand these gates are hundreds of miles wide. It's not like a gate, like a doorway here. They're hundreds of miles wide. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. These uh, words begin to buckle under the weight. He's trying, he's trying to do his best. He's going, guys, I'm seeing this stuff. I don't know how to say it, but this is as, as good as I can do. John is doing his best to describe what is, he has seen. Each gate is a single pearl. It doesn't say like a pearl, but it says it is a pearl. By the way, it doesn't give us at all where these giant pearls came from. You know, if you don't know, uh, pearls come from clams. Uh, I'd say a pearl that has hundreds of miles, that's a big clam. I, 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 I don't know if they were made or God just go, here's a pearl for this. The streets are gold. The streets are gold, but they are transparent as glass. Letting light through, not just letting light through, actually amplifying the light. Now watch in verse 22. I did not see a temple in, in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. There's no temple on this new city, on this new earth. In heaven right now, we know that there's a temple, right? It's copied after the one there. Why isn't there a temple in this new heaven and new earth? Because we don't need a place to go to meet with God. We will live with Him in His home. Do you see the difference? In a very real sense, the entire place is God's house and we live here. We'll hit this in January when we come back to this. But something I want you to understand is the uh, Bible in the King James Version. I, I love some of the way the King James Version says. But it's got some things that are translated not wrong, but just, just doesn't fit with us. When it says... There's a mansion. My father's building a mansion. It doesn't mean we picture some Victorian giant house and everybody goes, well, my mansion's gonna, it's not what it says. You'll remember when Jesus is talking, I'm going to a way to prepare a place for you to his disciples. You remember him saying that on the night before he was killed? He says, I'm going to a way to prepare a place for you. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. We will live God with God. We will live in God's 
house. All the outside of the city that we've seen so far has been translucent. It has this quality, quality about it that, that really amplifies the light. And I must admit, we don't know what that means. We just know that it is. But check this out, verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. Remember, who is the lamb? It's Jesus. It's likening him back to the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, right? This lamb sacrificed for our, our sins. There's no sun, no moon. It does, well, let me say it this way. It doesn't say that there is no sun and moon. It just, just says we don't need that. There may be. We just don't need it for light. The lamb is Jesus, right? God is described as being bright. And the entire new Jerusalem takes that light and makes it glow all over. But get this, it's not just light. I can't express this. Words fail me here. You're thinking light like you turn it on and light beams. It's not just that. It's not just that. But get this, the glory of God, the greatness of God. I want you to get at the very heart of you. I want you to understand this. You and I were created to reflect the glory, the greatness of God back to him and to the world around us. And the absolute coolest thing is that even now in our sinful, messed up world, Christians, we're forgiven, but we still sin, right? We're forgiven of the sin, but even now, the greatness of God can be reflected to the world around us. When we live our life for His plans, following the teachings of Jesus, living under His commands, God gives us this greatest joy, this greatest sense of purpose. Some of you long for purpose in your life. And this is what we're talking about. In other words, when we make our lives about living for Jesus and making Jesus' name great, literally taking the glory of God in our lives, the way we live, and reflecting it out, the world says, it's all about me and making myself happy. The world says, oh, the truth is in you. It's in your heart. Follow your heart, right? But it's about making his name great. That only leads to destruction, making our name great. But when we turn our lives to glorify him, that's when we can find true joy, true love, true, check this out, happiness. Here's the thing, that principle is true right now and it's very true in heaven, even in this fallen, messed up world. And it's massively better on that side of eternity when we are living in him without any desire for sin. In his house, without pain, without sickness, without death, check this out, baby, without sin. Someone say amen. amen. That's huge. Look at verse 24. Can you tell I'm happy? I get excited about this because this is a real place. Now check this out. The nations will walk by its light. What's light? The light of the new Jerusalem. In other words, it is light to all the nations. Here's what I want you to see. 
This isn't the only place, and we'll explore this in January. This isn't the only place, but it is the place. Does that make sense? There's places out from it. So it's a light to all the nations, all the peoples, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The Greek word that is translated nations here can literally be translated peoples or people groups. Does that make sense? So what's your people group now? I mean, Americans, we're, we're Heinz 57. We got everything. I know I've got a lot of Scottish in me, right? Scottish, maybe, maybe you've got Spanish. Maybe you've got uh, American Indian. Maybe you, you, you're from India, India. Maybe you're African American. It doesn't matter. Now, not all theologians agree on this, but check this out. We won't all be the same in heaven. We will look like our perfect race. And there won't be one race that's better than the others, right? Not everybody has straight hair. Some of us have curly hair, right? Some of you don't get the really cool gray beard. Some of you have red beards. That's okay too, right? What I'm saying is that the people, we will finally live as we were created to live with our people group. Every group will be represented now, this is speculation, but it's fun. Some people think that we'll have all these people groups, these different things. Like, I'm Scottish uh, in heaven. I'll have my perfect Scotsman uh, outfit on, right? Or maybe a different race. Uh, we're all God's people. Look at verse 25. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. Some of you are going, it will never be night and the gates will never close. Now, a couple of questions that brings up. Why walls if it's so safe? And why gates if they're never closed? Here's the reason. I don't know. <laughs> but what about the sun never setting? You'll never sleep. And some of you are like, going, oh, no, 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 no. Some of you like sleep. And it's because you live under the curse of sin. Here's what I mean, and this is not going to make great sense, but bear with me. You know, when we say rest and take a day of rest, you know, on old gravestones where it says, rip, rest in peace, some of you think that's like the cold, dead body laying there. That's not what they meant when they wrote that, by the way. Eternal rest. When Jesus says, enter my rest, that's what it's talking about here. In other words, you won't need rest because of the way that you live life then will give you constant more energy, more joy. It's a bad way to say it, but I'll say it anyway. When you have a job or something that you do that gives you life, maybe you're, uh, you like music or the job you do or something that gives you just a little bit of life like when you do it. Time passes funny. You know what I'm talking about? Like you go, man, this thing gives me life when I do it. And you go, man, I feel like I could do this forever. That's just a tiny, tiny portion. Rest in that. And our entire lives will give us energy, joy. But in Jan in January, when we come back to this, we'll be talking about what it looks like inside the city and what we will be doing in our time there. But watch how this chapter closes. Verse 26. 
They will bring the glory and honor of the nations to it. It's talking about the peoples, you guys, the kings, all the leaders. They will bring their glory. In other words, when God's glory hits them, their glory will make God's glory even better. We'll bring all that glory just like the city does. We will bring the glory in our purpose in this new world, in your work, in your worship, in what you do, back to God and glorify Him. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. We said this last week, but it bears repeating. Sin has been eliminated. You cannot sin in heaven. There is no chance of it. And you'll say, we won't be free to sin? No, I'm telling you, you will be free to not sin. See, we view freedom the wrong way, don't we? We think that this sin, it's a choice, and, and if that, we will be truly free. We will be set free from the bondage of sin, amen? But the complaint that I've heard about heaven from a few of you, I've been with some pastors lately outside of Bent Tree. They hear that, you know, we, we always talk, like, what are you preaching on? What are you? And they hear, I'm preaching on a revelation. They always go, Why? And I say, well, I, it gets me so excited. I say, like heaven. And, and I've had a couple of pastors kind of sidle up next to me and say, hey, Pastor Paul, what? I'm secretly worried heaven's going to be boring. Is that you? Like, did you? I was going to grab a hymnal or something. We don't have hymnals. It's like having a hymnal in your hand, standing in front of a hard pew, there's, and then you're sitting down, standing up, singing hymns you don't know. It's like all eternity. Isn't that what you thought heaven was like? It's one long, boring church service. Brothers and sisters, get that out of your mind. We will worship God without the weight of sin. In our very lives, how we live our lives will glorify God. It's this amazing thing. I've, I've said to those brothers, I say, hey, let me look. Let me just show you what I'm showing bent treers right now. We'll look at this together. And I've had pastors that go, this is amazing. I never knew this was here. The best things of life now. Get this. The best things of life now. Think of fellowship. The deep friendships of this life. How about the most beautiful art? Stuff that has touched you like you've seen it, you like you want to cry because the art's so beautiful. How about when you live with that purpose? That purpose like you go, oh man, I'm doing what I'm created to do. How about music? The best things of food. Somebody say amen. amen. Like food. How about adventure? Anybody like adventure? What about mystery? You like mystery? How about excitement? Blood-pumping excitement. How about technology, right? Who loves technology? You and Kip, right? I love, I love technology. How about this? How about travel? Anybody like to travel, like see the world? What about seeing like, oh, Saturn? Yeah, I'm being completely honest. What about worship? What about joy? 
these best things of life that we desire, we pursue, we're not even scratching the surface on what we will do there. Do you, want, do you understand what heaven's about? It's about your life there reflecting the greatness of who God is in perfect communion with him. Let me close with just a few thoughts from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6. And then we'll celebrate communion together. Jesus is preaching to his followers. You'll remember this. He's telling them how to pray and how to fast how to not be anxious about stuff. He says something very interesting at the end of that section. He takes this idea the world has and uh, has held so deeply, so ingrained for years. And he says, this idea the world has won't work for you. It doesn't work now and won't work for you for eternity. Now this idea of the world, you know it. It's ingrained in you so deeply that you probably Live your life by it right now. I'll tell you how you can tell. I would guess if you examine your life right now and how it's going up to this point, how old you are right now, and you look back at your life, you believe this idea the world is selling you. I'm not making fun because I believe this lie too. Jesus says this idea the world is selling you won't work. He tells this, this in Matthew 6. 19, he says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Now, I want you to know, this could be money. It could be family. What, what do you think in your mind that would make you happy right now? Like if I just had this, it make, that's the treasure. He says, don't store up that treasure on earth. He says, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Here's what you need to understand. This idea where moth, bugs that eat it, right? But this word rust, the Greek word there, doesn't mean just like rust on metal. It literally means mildew, rust, and anything rot that rots and it turns to dust. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? He says, where moth and anything that can destroy it where, and where thieves break in and steal it. Now hear it this way, Jesus intend, the way Jesus intends. Jesus is taking this idea of the purpose of our life. He's saying the world is lying to you. Hang with me. That you can find purpose in accumulating your treasure. He's saying if you can get enough treasure, the world says if you can get enough treasure that you can find joy. Are you with me? And the biggest part of the lie that we miss over and over is this. The enemy says, oh yeah, you don't enjoy it now, but if you get enough of it, there will be a magic time ahead where you can take it easy, enjoy your treasure, whatever your treasure is, whether it be money or relationship or whatever. But that time never comes, does it? He says, you will be happy. The enemy says, you'll be happy. Then you can spend it on you and you'll be happy. And so we live our lives working for the treasure and we miss what God has. Jesus says it won't work. In fact, Jesus is saying it can't work. He's saying if you want treasure that you can actually accumulate and enjoy and won't go away and won't be destroyed, he says, do this. 
He says, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Stay with me. Jesus is saying two things. First, he's saying you have the supernatural ability in this life to put things in heaven in the next life, to put your treasure. You have that ability. That's a pretty radical statement that you now, a mortal person on earth, can store up real physical things and spiritual things in an account that won't be lost in heaven. That in the way you live your life and by being generous toward God, your giving of your tithe, your money, your time, your love, pouring into it, you can store up for yourself. There is an accounting system. Are you with me? And the second thing is that it won't be lost there. Now don't miss this. This is very important. You can't have your heart in two places. It simply doesn't work. You and I are built with the capacity for having our life set on one thing. Jesus says it this way. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, we are not just talking about treasure here and where you put it. Oh, get me. This is your happiness right here. We are talking about the very point of why you were born. We're talking about your life for all eternity, your purpose for living the way you live now, the why behind the way you live, your motivation to get out of bed right now in the morning. That's what we're talking about. He's saying it has to do with what you're setting your heart on, your treasure. He says if you put your treasure there, your heart will be set on that. Many of you live a halfway Christian life and it frustrates you. Listen, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I love you. I want to tell you this. Like you truly believe Jesus saved you. He loves you, but let's face it. You treasure the things in this life more than you do in all eternity. But it's in this life where your heart is, your time, your money, your effort. Let's be honest, your heart is here. The reason you worry about heaven being boring, because you have nothing of value there. It's here in this temporary world. And just as your friend, let me say it's not going to last. And some of you, you go, yeah, like I get it, like I'm going to die. No, no, let me just say, some of you will live to 100 years old. Some of you, let's say you like crazy live long, 106 110 years old, right? 30, 40 years after they bury your old body in the grave, not a soul on earth will remember you ever lived. Do you understand what I'm saying? But on that side, we will be there, Christians. We will remember you. It's as simple as this. Maybe you believe one thing, that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, but what you're living doesn't line up with what you say you believe. And hear me, I'm talking to saved Christians right now. Those who love Jesus, if you've got those two things in line with what you say you believe and why, the way you're living, listen to me, the 
earthly treasure that you lay up will be nothing compared to the treasure there. I can't wait to see the treasure you will have in heaven and the joy that you will have on this side of earth. Let's pray.